The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Inspired, informed, motivated, and recharged on radio's favorite power hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with your hosts, Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Every day is a stellar day on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Let's get this party started. Cynthia will be back to kick it all off after this break. is talking the world talk radio variety channel apathy violence and negative messages are everyday occurrences in our country you can be a change maker when you dare to care by supporting be the star you are charity a 501c3 that empowers women families and youth through improved literacy positive media and tools for living visit www.bethestarur.org to find out how you can make a difference in our world Everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. Bethestarur.org. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll-free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at bethestarur.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, hello, Power Partners. Welcome to another installment of the world's most upbeat positive talk radio show on the planet. Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Brittany. And we are your personal growth coaches every week here. Today's show, we're going to go to the happiest place on earth, Disneyland, and take you behind the scenes. Then we're going to be talking with U.S. Marine Corps retired Colonel George Van Sant with his book, Taking on the Burden of History, 
followed by an interview with first-time novelist Beth Hoffman as she takes us to the world of women in the savannah with her book, Saving Cece Honeycutt. So turn up the volume, relax, and enjoy the party. The miracle moment for today is brought to you by the book, Be the Star You Are for Teens, Simple Gifts for Living, Loving, Laughing, Learning, and Leading. Pick up autographed copies now at Be the Star. StarYouAre.com. That's be the StarYouAre.com. This is by Lou Holtz. Ability is what you're capable of doing. Motivation determines what you do, but it's attitude that determines how well you do it. Well, speaking of attitude, we're going to go to Walt Disney, who dreamed the big dream despite all the hardships and being told that dreams are not very good collateral. We're going to celebrate the colorful, wide world of Disney because no matter how old you are, Disneyland, Disney World is magical. This past week, Heather and I had an opportunity to party as adults in this land where dreams do come true. (laughs) And it was conceived by the creative genius Walt Disney before World War II as a place for his employees to relax. It was built and opened in July of 1955. And so, Heather, we want to just talk a little bit about some of the things we were talking about while we were at Disney. So give us a little bit of the history and then yeah. let's talk behind well, the scenes. you know what? It was so fun. When we were there, there's just so much. I think when you're a kid, the only thing you see is the characters and the rides. And when you get older, and especially in this economy, you start thinking about the cost and how much food is and where does this go to. I mean, in Tokyo, we had the most magical, so much fun, but you kind of start, new things started interesting us about, you know, wow, this place is so clean, you know, how many, it seems like there's always, the people that work, there's so many friendly people, so in our investigation, we wanted to know, what? I was just going to say, before you go into the behind the scenes we're going to do, because you just said about cost, I just wanted to put this little uh, caveat, this little thing in there, is that when Disney opened, the first day it opened, it only charged uh, visitors a dollar admission, which was about, it's about $6.50 in today's dollar, and mm-hmm. then and there were only three free attractions, and of course then you could buy tickets to other attractions. There were 18 rides that cost 10 cents to 35 cents. Today it's $72 to go in the gate. <laughs> so that's kind of a big difference. So anyway, exactly. let's talk about behind the scenes because there's so much that goes into it. Yeah, and you know, when Disneyland was first purchased, it was only 160 acres, and 100 of that acres was just the parking lot, um, you know, which is so interesting to me. But what I was saying is I was really surprised that I was able to find my information when looking for this stuff because it was kind of these questions we never thought to ask. And so the big thing, you know, one, I wanted to know how many people work at um, Disneyland, and they said by season, um, they usually have about 35, uh, was it 3,500 during off season and 10,000 people during their peak season. Uh, and that, you know, on a daily basis of things, um, Disneyland, and when, if you've ever gone there and seen the amazing fireworks show, and now when they had recently, a couple of years ago, or they had their 50 year anniversary and for their, for I think a couple of weeks they had the big thing. It was a hundred 
$1,000 a night. But the, the one that we got to see, the Sleeping Beauty, the one that goes $41,000 every single night for that fireworks spectacular. And it was no joke. We joked with saying, I think that was not just the nightly one we saw was, wow, um, I think that was the best fireworks show I've ever seen. And they do that every single night. Um, one thing, too, you know, I thought was really interesting, um, Disneyland welcomes about 65,000 guests every single day. And in the course of a year, it's estimated that they see between 10 and 12 million people. And um, that, is, that just, you know, is absolutely mind-boggling when you think of everything that goes into it at Disneyland, from the safety of the rides to the cleanliness of the park to the food service and the you know, and the restrooms and the parades and, and it just, it just, there's so many details. The gardens, you know, the, the light shows and all the characters. And, that is and you know, amazing and that, that was, it can run so smoothly with that and, many people. Exactly. And something that we were trying to, we were thinking about is, as you were saying, is, um, you know, one great thing, if you're, if you're looking to go to Disneyland, and save, you know, do some, there's the give a day, get a day. If you have, um, we did our give a day, get a day by, um, volunteering with Be the Star You Are. Um, but also if you go on your birthday, you can get a free admission ticket because it's one of those things you're trying to look for a family, you know, an oriented fun thing, but it can become rather costly. And as you were saying, when you were a kid, you know, it was, $25 or something like that. Well, and I don't really remember I was telling you about it. I remember this e-ticket. And mm-hmm. so, in fact, that became kind of a colloquialism that you could say, gosh, that's like an e-ticket when something was really cool. Because the e-ticket, which was introduced, I think, sometime, might have been, um, I, know, I think it was like 1959, the e-ticket was introduced, and I wasn't there then, but... It it went on, and I think until they came up with the fast pass, which was, um, you know, back in the '90s sometime. But what the e-ticket was was it was the most expensive ticket, and it granted you access to the exciting rides and attractions like Space Mountain and Pirates of the Caribbean, whereas just the regular tickets would maybe get you into the Enchanted Tiki Room or a, a ride on the teacup. <laughs> But now oh, it's a fast pass, so you can you pay one price and you can go any place. But the lines are still long, and so you can easily wait an hour in line. And it's it's challenging to find something that is only twenty five minutes to thirty minutes. Yeah, and you know something? I mean, there was just so they they said that too. They said an average wait is about thirty minutes. And the smart thing to do if you're looking to save time is to come back at night time. You can go right so much faster. But some really interesting facts when I was looking into this is if you've ever noticed you're on the rides and the music is always playing, well, the ride, the thing with the music is always constantly running. They, it, it would cost them more money to turn it off every day than it does to keep it going. So their music, all the, the little things in your waiting line you hear is never turned off. You only mean not at nighttime when it closes at, no, at midnight? No, actually, when I was looking into it, they said at nighttime, hours a day. At, at nighttime, they turn it, they turn the volume down so that it doesn't um, annoy the, the maintenance crews. But um, due to cost-wise, it would actually cost them more money to restart off, to turn everything off and restart up every day. Um, so they keep things going. And, I mean, this is including, you know, the Haunted Mansion, the buggy rides. You know, so they just turn it down so they won't go a little crazy. And something, too, we were wondering about all, um, you know, the vendors – 
I thought this was so interesting because there's all these different lands, and Walt Disney designed it so that when you're in one land, you can't see another land. So it gives it that magical sense of that, um, you know, you are, you're in a completely, you know, you're going to so many different places, and yet you're in one contained area. And if you're ever wondering what land you're in, look at the garbage cans. Every single land has its own unique style of garbage cans, and that will that will help um, show you, you know, what if you're in adventure land, frontier land, um, you know, all those fun things. And you know, one thing that I was impressed with this time around, and it's because it's been many years. I think it's been since the early '90s since I have mm-hmm. been there was that the food in Disneyland was really good. Because I've always, in the past, I just remember, maybe it was because I was so much younger and maybe all I ate mm-hmm. was a hamburger or a hot dog. But we, in um, in New Orleans Square, this uh-huh. time, we had a fabulous clam chowder in a sourdough bowl that was really, it was just so wonderful. It was right next to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, which and then I, and I, and I have to say that was so delicious. And if you've ever, I'm actually, I'm so happy you brought up the New Orleans thing because if you've ever gone on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, you'll see there's this really great restaurant inside there. And there are some nice restaurants at Disneyland that are a bit more pricey and you have to be willing to wait a little while. But as I remember when I mentioned, there's a secret society kind of club right, exactly. um, in Disneyland. And it's actually the, the, the secret entrance is in um, the New Orleans Times Square, right? At, the club is called the uh, Club 33. And why it's called Club 33 is the one entrance is right next to the Blue Bio. Um, and that's the day right nice, on. That is a nice restaurant. And um, and it's a new one, and it's big. all you see is this big sign that just says 33, you know, saying that it's a town sign. So this club 33, um, currently there's a little over 400 members. There's a two to three year wait list to be in it. There's an, it's on the corporate level, it's a twenty thousand dollars um, with an additional five thousand five hundred annual uh, fee <laughs> to be part of this secret club. This and club, who can get into um, this club? And, and in this get club, into? something that's really interesting, how you get into well, that's the thing that it's kind of to, that you can apply. They, I, I went on the, this little website thing, is you can apply for it and they'll send you this thing, but you're advised it's a two to three year wait. Um, and there's a, even an initial just, you know, submitting it, kind of like you're submitting for colleges and you have to pay a fee. There's that as well. And um, what this secret society for <laughs> the club other than paying a lot of money, um, it's this uh, Club 33, though Disneyland has a liquor license to sell all throughout, it's only offered in this secret club, and um, or when they hold private events, as well as you get valet parking in California land, you have an unlimited pass to an annual pass, which you can choose between California land or Disneyland, with no blackout dates every single day, 365 um, days a year. And then I guess, you know, you have the secret thing of being part of uh, this club, but the price just blew me away um, that they offered it in two things, an individual level or a corporate level, and the corporate level was $20,000. Well, I guess you could say that entrance to that private club then is definitely for Disney groupies. (laughs) You really have to love going back to, to Disneyland or Disney World and being part of the celebration on a regular basis. Yeah, and um, and something too. I I mean, there was just so many neat little facts that, that Disneyland uses twenty thousand gallons of paint per year. And the one thing I thought was 
kind of uh, it's kind of ironic in a sense. Well, recently, it was about 15 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, um, they had developed a terrible rodent problem, which is funny because it's mouse, Mickey Mouse, um, in Disneyland, and they were having trouble trying to get rid of it. So they decided to kind of do the survival of the fittest, and they introduced um, a stray cats into the park. And um, with this, you know, and it, it actually helped having these wild cats, but thus because it, now they've contained, in a sense, this rodent problem. But if you look around, you'll often find in the cat in um, Disneyland, there's a lot of cats just roaming around. And they decided to be perfectly fine. And I read and I was reading interviews from, you know, cast member, you know, people that work in the park and saying that, you know, the cats are really tame and they feed them. Um, and for the most part, you know, they can be kind of shy because they're tame cats, but um, now they've kind of created um, a cat infestation problem because now. the cats aren't, you know, it's kind of that thing constantly where this has happened in foreign lands where, you know, they try to introduce a new species in order to wipe out another species. That is, and, that is you know, so ironic. <laughs> well, hard. you know, for anyone who is interested in going to Disneyland, just keep in mind that Disney this year is doing Give a Day, Get a Disney Day. So if you volunteer with an, an approved charity for a certain number of hours and in the hopes that you'll continue volunteering with the charity, you might be eligible for a free pass to Disneyland. Be the Star You Are is one of those charities. For more information, you can visit uh, be the star you are dot org. And I just wanted to end the segment with what Walt Disney once said, which was that Disneyland will never be completed as long as there's imagination left in the world. And hopefully there's always imagination. So, Heather, would you give out the website? Most definitely. We want you to go to be the star you are dot org, be the star you are dot com, myspace dot com forward slash Carmine Clutches Boast with a K. Well, you have just had a whirlwind tour of the happiest place on earth. When we return, we'll be talking with retired U.S. Marine uh, Colonel George Van Sant with his illustrious memoir, Taking on the Burden of History. I am Cynthia Bryan. And I'm Heather Bittney. And this is Star Style. Be the star you are. Don't go away. We've got a great show coming up. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Apathy, violence, and negative messages are everyday occurrences in our country. You can be a change maker when you dare to care by supporting Be the Star You Are Charity, a 501c3 that empowers women, families, and youth through improved literacy, positive media, and tools for living. Visit www.bethestarur.org to find out how you can make a difference in our world. Everyone counts. That web address again is www.bethestarur.org. Be the star you are.org. 
Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature star-style consultations with personalized sessions by phone or in person. You'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7888. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com You can be the star you are. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the Star You Are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll-free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at bethestaryouare.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. Well, thanks for staying with us. You are the stars. I am Cynthia Bryan, and we are here where the world comes to talk and listen. Every week, Star Style, Be the Star You Are brings you the authors who will inspire and entertain you. Well, memoirs can sometimes be boring personal experiences to anyone who wasn't privy to the actual events. Not so with George Van Sant's narrative of taking on the burden of history. It's a big book packed with historical significance. This retired Marine and philosophy professor, he knows how to really tell a story. Welcome, Van, to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Well, it's glad to be here. <laughs> well, I really loved your book. I've already said this to you a few times, but when I read your tome, it's 467 pages. First two things that struck me, Van, were, number one, you have an absolutely incredible memory for details and a wonderful way of writing the narrative that makes you laugh and cry and just be there in the moment. And number two, you really love the Marines and learn so much from it. So I want to talk with, um, talk with you about First of all, how you enlisted in the Marines. I mean, you were only 17. You were listening to a friend talk about how difficult boot camp was and how hard it was to get in, and that actually enticed you. But you were—you had a few challenges. You were really tall at six foot two, and you were too tall for the Marines. So you had to go through a battery of tests, most of them kind of buck naked. Tell us about that and how you got into the Marines and why uh, Marines are considered America's best. Well, that's a lot of questions. But, it's a uh, lot. It's I, a lot, but there's so much in your book. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I'm actually six foot five, and when I it was near the end of World War II when I enlisted, and Marines would only take you as an enlistee, uh, if you were six foot two or lower, oh, you yes, had to get sorry. away. I got the I got the height wrong because six foot two was the tallest. That, that right? was the tallest they would right. take without a waiver, and I had to go for a waiver board, which meant that I appeared before this doctor, uh, stark naked, and uh, was put through a variety of exercises. 
to determine that I was coordinated enough to bear up. That must have been rather embarrassing at 17. I mean, it, I can it, just it, imagine. It, it was. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, it, but it didn't deter your determination to, oh, no, to get no, in I, there. I, I was really, uh, after the seed got planted, and, uh, and that has something to do with why I wrote the book. Uh, it, it, I, I really wasn't a hard-charging, gung-ho Marine type guy when I was, that age and never have been. As you know, I was a philosophy professor all my life. Which seemed to me so but, counterintuitive. I mean, it but, just seemed counter to be a Marine and a yeah. philosophy professor, which you'll have to tell us how well, that all actually, came about. Actually, there are, there are several of us around in America who, who've done both. <laughs> is, but, it, is that right? That, to me, that was so fascinating because you actually did take a philosophical look at life actually throughout your whole times on active duty. That, that's absolutely true, and and the thing, w- one of the reasons why I wrote the book, though, the main reason, well, aside from the fact that uh, uh, I wanted my family to have some record of my experiences, but was that I, I've I've always been awestruck by by the Marine Corps from the very beginning, because it can take a wide variety of young men and women, pose these challenges for them, and make them. You know, people are Marines for life. You know, they say once a Marine, always a Marine, because once that uh, Marine Corps emblem gets stamped on your soul, it never goes away. And uh, how they managed to do that during World War II and during the Korean War, the two that I'm most familiar with, the the, uh, the guys, young men, 17, 18, 19, were put through this training and... Within six or eight months, sometimes, they were out there under terrible conditions, under fire and in terrible combat, and yet they they lived up to the traditions of the core. And the answer to the question, and one of the things I tried to stress in the book, is that the Marine Corps pounds its history into each individual Marine. It, you, you come out of Paris Island boot camp with a encyclopedic knowledge of the history of the Marine Corps. And, well, and that... you talk about how you celebrate on November 10th, oh, the yeah. birthday, yeah, no matter oh. where you are in the world, there is a celebration for That's the birthday exactly of the Marine Corps. exactly right. And, and the thing about it is that you are so uh, imbued with this spirit because you're so knowledgeable about the history of it that you'd never want to let this outfit down. And I think that's what... Uh, it's a burden. You take on the burden of history. That's the title of my book. Right. And then I said, presuming to be a U.S. Marine, because I always thought it was a little presumptuous that I was a Marine, but I, <laughs> I, I made it. But and, not, well, not, I wouldn't say you just made it. You were given a Purple Heart for being on Bunker Hill there in uh, in Korea. That's a little bit more yeah, than well, that. I got a, a couple decorations too, but I. Uh, you had you well you you went up the ranks you got quite a few decorations, yeah. but uh, it it was uh, you know I was just an ordinary guy and a little bit out of the ordinary in some ways perhaps uh, more an academically inclined person and yet the Marine Corps made a Marine out of me. <laughs> but you know that brings me to a question, Van, because you just said that you were just sort of a normal person. Is it, We always think of the Marine Corps, at least my vision, my limited vision, is of being very 
you know, it's an elite core of men and women. And so can anyone actually get into this elite core if you live up to the standards? Well, of course, they do have a minimum physical and intellectual standards, but, but they, uh, uh, then, then that, that program takes over. And they, well, one of the interesting things about boot camp, and I do mention this in the book, is they strip away every bit of individuality or anything associated with you, your personality. They, they strip you right down to the basic core, and then they rebuild you as a Marine. That's sort of the way they do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we had to, uh, when we checked into Paris Island, I don't know if you remember, I, we had to throw away our underwear and put all of our clothes or anything that we'd brought with us in a box to ship home to our mothers. <laughs> well, this, this is what, you know, I really wondered mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that whole procedure, too, because mm-hmm. is that... By stripping away your identity, does that work for the majority of the people who oh. attempt or presume to go into the Marines? It does, yes. Because it seemed like you were getting yelled at. There's all kinds of, you're called all kinds of names. Yet, you thrived. You absolutely well, thrived. And you were thrilled to become a mess man. <laughs> Tell us about what that was. Oh, well, that was I mean, when I went to, first went to camp for June. When you, when you first went to camp. Yeah, out of out of boot camp. I, I uh, well, I wouldn't say I was thrilled. I mean, I didn't I don't think the book applies. Well, you was, actually said that you thought it was a good job. Well, it, it 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 was it was a remarkable experience because you see what it's like to feed a couple thousand people every day, three meals a day, and uh, I, uh, as as I mentioned, I was I was in charge of the coffee. Yeah, I, I laughed at that, is that you had to make coffee, and it, until you said how many gallons it was, then I realized, my gosh, that had to be more difficult than it sounded. Although later in your career, when you were on the ship and you got to be in the laundry, it was actually supposed to be a punishment. That, to me, sounded like a really good job, because I was shocked to know that the other people, if you weren't an officer, you washed your clothes by dragging them behind the ship. Well, along the sides of the oh, ship. Oh, the side yeah. of the ship. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. a rope, you tied your clothes on a rope and threw them over, and then they just uh, got beaten by the salt water. But, uh, no, that was that was a nice experience, too, plus the fact I got to eat with the crew. <laughs> and you had good food. Well, there were four important men in the Marines to you, um, and yeah. they all had a big influence on your life, and uh, like Chester... Uh, you actually became uh, friends with, and and you'd have lunch with him after you were a mm-hmm. professor, and his daughter was in your class. Mm-hmm. Would you um, just give us a little bit of information about why Chester, Bill, Griffin, and uh, George were were so influential in your career as a Marine as well as your life? Well, Chester Puller is a legend in the Marine Corps. It sounds uh, like it. Well, he is. Anybody who's ever been associated with the Marine Corps has heard of Chesty Puller and is filled with the mystique. He gets, in in the history of the Marine Corps that's pounded into recruits today, he gets, uh, Chesty Puller and his story is pounded. He got five Navy crosses in his career. And uh, he, uh, in fact, today, young 17, 18-year-old Marines at Paris Island are taught by their drill instructors uh, as they are going to sleep at night, good night, Chesty, wherever you are. 
I, you know, I read that in your book. We're, ta- we're talking to uh, George Van Sant, the colonel, retired U.S. Marines. His book is Taking on the Burden of History, Presuming to be United States Marine. And we're not even getting even into the depths of this book because this book it talks about the end of World War II, what it was like to be in Korea, um, to be on liberty, et cetera. It's just a fascinating, fascinating jaunt through what it is like to be a Marine and your experiences. But um, you said that, that still to this day they say goodnight, Chester, wherever you are. I found that to be really interesting. He really had to have made an indelible mark. He died in 1971. I mean, he's uh, he's been gone for almost 40 years, but he's still a visible presence. Now, the other three gentlemen were all personal friends. Uh, Bill Boatsman was my sidekick in China, and uh, he uh, he was an extraordinary man and had a profound influence on me. He he was a he was a veteran of Iwo Jima, and uh, he uh, which just celebrated its uh, the 65th anniversary of the landing on Iwo just a few days ago, and. Uh, uh, so you see how the history of the Marine Corps keeps bearing on you? <laughs> Everybody yeah. knows those dates. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's true. It, it is really true. How it, I think what happened, it sounds like what happens is you make lifelong friends. And what you um, wove within the, the book, too, is that it didn't matter where you went, you would end up meeting a Marine and you would always have something in common. Oh, yes. And and we still, still run into people... Uh, not every day, but quite frequently, that our paths had crossed somewhere. I had a good laugh, Van, when you talked about landing in Hawaii and trying to convince, um, you wanted to go out on liberty, you wanted to convince them that you, your aunt lived in Hawaii, but you didn't have any paperwork to show it, and, yeah. and you actually uh, skipped out and got away with it in a very <laughs> lucky stance. That was re- that was a really uh, humorous account. Well, it was, and, and, and looking back on it, my my whole career, I'd have never become an officer if I'd been caught. Then. <laughs> Is that right? That would have yeah. been that would have been that would have, uh, that would have been pretty pretty serious. Because would have that been called desertion or? No, it's called missing a movement. But oh. with a ship, when a ship is sailing, if I had missed the ship, now. If they had caught me just going over the hill, I'd have probably gotten some punishments, and that would have been on my record. But, uh, but if you had missed the ship, that would have been bad. That would have been bad. But I got back in plenty of time for yeah, the ship. Yeah, you got back. Does it happen very often that people miss the ship? Because it sounds like when you went on liberty leave, and I don't mean just you, I mean, you know, your <laughs> your mates as well, Is there were some pretty fun times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you have a good time. Uh, another right. very funny thing was, um, it, I, and I'm not—I don't want to give away all the secrets of your book, but <laughs> do you know when you um, met this lovely white Russian, <laughs> and when oh. we're invited to her apartment, and then find out that she has a growling husband, and you end up hiding in a broom closet? I laughed. I was howling. <laughs> well. Yeah, that 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 was pretty funny. Yes, in retrospect, it, I was probably in hindsight it's funny. <laughs> At the time, I'm sure it was a little bit unnerving. Yes, it was. Now, you know, I have a question. There's you talk about in the book cigarettes quite often mm-hmm. and how they were handed out. I don't know if the right would be a reward, but how actually cigarettes help people get through the war, especially oh. you talk about in Iwo Jima 
how, you know, this... Boatsman, Bill Boatsman. Boatsman yeah. was smoking, what, a pack, a, more than a pack a, a day, or what, not a pack, he a, and a his carton. partner, Stretcher Bear, were smoking a carton a day. Carton a day, right, yeah. a carton a day. And I remember my dad, um, who, like you, just was at the mm-hmm. end of World War II, but that's where he was first given cigarettes, and we got out of the service... Mm-hmm. He was he never he didn't smoke anymore, but it, they were in they were in everybody everybody got cigarettes and so what oh. was the whole thing with that? Is it just helped you get through it? Well, Cynthia, you're you're not old enough to remember it, but the United States through the Depression and World War II and Korea and the end of the fifties and sixties, everybody smoked. Yes, almost I, everybody smoked. Yeah, I guess that was it. They, they were kind of odd if they didn't. I mean, it was. So it was a. This was like a treat then. This was, was something a, that was more of a treat. Well, I, I smoked for many years. I finally quit many, many years ago. Now, I thank goodness my doctor is very happy. But uh, it <laughs> cigarettes do give you a little bit of a. The nicotine helps. I. I yeah. So it did. It helped. Oh yeah. Well, the uh, the other things too that I w- was just wanting to say is you were decorated many times. You did receive that Purple Heart when that grenade exploded in Korea at the Bunker Hill combat. I mean, you definitely had angels watching over you. Oh, I um, did. Some of the uh, combat that you were in, um, I imagine you just never forget things like this. No, and as I said in the preface to the book, it was hard to write at times. It really was. Yeah, I think going back, was it cathartic at all to relive it? I don't know how you remembered the details. It, this well, is such a detail-oriented book well, with names and dates. And did you keep a journal? No. No, no. That's in in in, in the service. If you are in any kind of combat or operational, it's, it's against the law to keep a diary. You know, because oh, it's I didn't even know that. Enemy hands and. And in fact, several of my friends and colleagues have accused me of having kept the journal, which I did not. But I just, uh, I, uh, I, as I was having these experiences, I kept impressing them upon myself just because, God, this is going to make a wonderful story to tell somebody. Well, someday. also I think the fact that you are a philosophy professor, <laughs> that you were educated, that you knew that, you know, when you did uh, retire from the service, this is what you really wanted to do. I mean, you, you knew that you were going to be writing or something. You must have had it indelibly in your heart, in your mind. I want to give out your website, Van, so people can pick up a copy of the book. We're talking to author George Van Sant. His book is Taking on the Burden of History, Presuming to be a United States Marine. The website is presumedmarine.com, presumedmarine.com. Van, it is a pleasure. This is such an excellent book, and anyone who is interested in the history of the Marines and the history of that era, the 40s, 50s, and beyond, really need to pick this up. And um, I just congratulate you on writing this. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Van, for being on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. Best of success, and I know your family has to be delighted with uh, this history that you provided them. You will never be forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) That was George Van Sant, author of Taking on the Burden of History. When we'll be going to the south across the Mason-Dixie line when we return with Beth Hoffman and her novel Saving Cece Honeycutt. 
This is Star Style. Be the star you are. I'm Cynthia Bryan. We'll be back in a bit. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. Maybe we're supposed to meet the wrong people before meeting the right one so that when we finally meet the right person, we'll know how grateful for that gift. Maybe when the door of happiness closes, another one opens. But oftentimes we look so long at that closed door that we don't even see the new one which is open for us. Maybe it's true that we don't know what we have until we lose it, but it's also true that we don't know what we've been missing until it arrives. Maybe the happiest of people don't necessarily have the best of everything. They just make the most of everything that comes their way. Maybe the brightest future will always be based on a forgotten past After all, you can't go on successfully in life unless you let go of your past, your mistakes, your failures, and your heartaches. Maybe you should dream what you want to dream, go where you want to go, be what you want to be, because you only have one life and one chance to do all the things you dream of and want to do. Maybe there are moments in life when you miss someone, a parent, a spouse, a friend, a child, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, so much that you just want to pick them up and hug them for real. Maybe the best kind of friend is the kind you can sit on a porch swing swing with and never say a word. Maybe you should always try to put yourself in others' shoes, and if you feel that something could hurt you, it probably will hurt the other person too. And maybe it's best to do something nice for someone every single day, even if it means leaving them alone. Don't expect love in return. Just wait for it to grow in your heart. And maybe you... Don't go for looks because they can be deceiving. Instead, remember, you are the star of your own performance. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite and a lifestyle suggestion from Star Style. For coaching, call 925-377-STAR. Are you living your dreams? Want to create a life you love but don't know how to begin? Lifestyle coach and personal growth expert Cynthia Bryan has jump-started the lives and careers of clients for over two decades with her signature Star Style consultations. With personalized sessions by phone or in person, you'll turn your passions into profits. Visit www.cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-STAR. That's cynthiabryan.com or call 925-377-7888. Cynthia Bryan is your guide on the side. www.cynthiabryan.com You can be the star you are. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to listen and talk.
You're listening to Star Style. Be the star you are with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Be the star you are is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation to improve literacy and positive media. All contributions and donations are tax deductible. To comment on today's show, please call in toll free at 1-866-613-1612. That's 1-866-613-1612. Or send an email to info at be the star you are.org. Now back to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan. Be the star you are. We appreciate you staying with us here on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I am Cynthia Bryan. An interior designer has a life-changing experience and decides to write a novel which becomes a New York Times bestseller. Beth Hoffman's first book is Safing CC Honeycut. It is a marvelous story about the colorful woman in a 12-year-old's life. Welcome, Beth, to Be the Star You Are. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Well, being a designer is creative work, Beth, and yet I'm wondering how CC became your story. Had she been percolating inside there for a long time? Enlighten us a bit. Well, yes and no. When I was nine years old, um, I was invited to visit my great-aunt Mildred Caldwell in Danville, Kentucky. And I'm, I was a farm girl. I mean, I lived in a very rural area and didn't have a lot of life exposure to anything. So when I went down and took the train to Danville, Kentucky, it was culture shock of the finest kind. I had never seen such beautiful homes and gardens and lovely trees or been surrounded by women that were so unique. Um, And it really had an effect on me. I was exposed to wonderful African Americans and to these delightful Southern ladies who were so involved in charity work and that type of thing that... It just touched my heart, and I originally thought I would write my story about that. And while I was working on the outline, that is when C.C. Honeycutt came to me, and I literally just tossed everything I was working on aside, and I let C.C. come forward, and that's how the story really started. Isn't that exciting when you're writing an outline and then you just have this epiphany? She is... Such an adorable, you know, I want to say young lady, but she's really a young girl because she's 12. Her mother has died tragically. Her mom was kind of stuck in the 1950s as being the 1951 Vidalia Onion Queen and lived her life like that. But when Cece arrives in Savannah, a whole new world opened up to her. I love that all the characters are very well-developed, Beth. I mean, you just did an amazing job of bringing them to life. I, just, I wanted to be there with Aunt Tootie, and, and my favorite, I think, character of all is Oletta, the, the cook, housekeeper, just the delightful woman. She is so wise. So what I found with your book, it's not just a novel. It really is filled with simple wisdom of how to be a good person and, you know, how to live from experience and to treat others with respect. Well, that's right, and it's interesting that your favorite character is also my favorite character. I aspire to be like Oletta Jones every oh, day. Oh, I did too. Yeah. You know, when, when I, I had to chuckle, and I don't want to give, you know, this is the kind of book you don't want to give away anything, so I don't want to give pieces away, but the, the, whole, um, the whole slug incident and peeking through the fence 
that CC goes through and the the following up with the letter writing because she does it because she feels that maybe Oletta couldn't uh, get back at uh, the evil <laughs> the evil neighbor <laughs> yeah evil violin I laugh so hard and then when Oletta catches her in the act I thought it was just it was amazing the way Oletta handled it it was um and then what she actually did i i it made me it just it just I was filled with emotions and such strong behavior and such ethical behavior writing those scenes that you're talking about especially with the letter i had no idea any of that was going to happen and this was truly creative writers alchemy where my my characters just took over and i was more like someone that was just transcribing what I was seeing. I would have never thought that up by myself in a million years. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was like divine intervention. It's yeah. almost like when you're writing and that your fingers are just typing and you don't know where it's coming from. Exactly. exactly. I, I truly understand that. I have my, my first book that I wrote when I'm asked about certain, you know, I'll be asked about a passage and I'll go, oh, that's brilliant. Who wrote that? And somebody will say, well, you did. And I go, no, I didn't. And then I look on my, my computer. I did. Mm-hmm. So I understand that completely. Yeah. But it is, it is something really magical that happens. Were you totally delighted when you found it, when you read it? Oh, there's so many times when I would laugh because I would think, I didn't even think of this. Where did it come from? It was like grasping a little light beam that was going by real fast and holding on to it just long enough to be able to get it down on the computer. Um, well, you know, and I bet another one of those incidences was what happened on the beach and then the subsequent uh, consequences or repercussions. I was holding my breath through all of that. Was mm-hmm. Aunt Tootie going to find out what was going to happen? You know, I know, it was because you love these ladies so much, and I, I just came to be part of that family. I wanted to be one of those women in that group. I wanted to be at the garden party. Oh, shouldn't we all have a garden party like that? Yes, a garden party, and uh, and like that, and uh, and also the the talk of the town. What happened to the garden party? <laughs> <laughs> that was that was an absolute blast to write that scene. It came so fast; my fingers were flying over the keyboard. Oh, I am sure this this Mrs. Hobbs is a piece of work. You know, the whole time I don't know if this if your book is being optioned for a movie, but. I vote for it to be option for a movie. <laughs> and, and I was thinking, I was trying to think, who would play these parts? Who well, you know, um, my parts? girlfriends and I always talk about who's going to play whom in the movie, um, because probably it will be a movie. I don't want to say too much more than that right now, but we have so much fun trying to figure out who would be the best actress to play the different parts. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I was, ju- I was trying to put my fingers on Hobbs because the way you have her uh, clothed, the, her, the way she's so snooty and she has all these racial slurs and she just thinks she is the cat's meow when, you know, pretty much she's probably trailer trash dressed up uh, in a fancy house. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, of course, that's the reason why she is snooty. I think that um, I'm certainly not a psychologist, but I think that sometimes people who come from a background that they're ashamed of, instead of embracing it and saying, look what I've become now, 
they they take on airs that they shouldn't. Right. Yeah, right. and I and think they that's try what to violin be better than is thou. Like. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Well, and um, also I thought very interesting how you pulled together some of the uh, the elderly from the retirement home and the marbles, the marble <laughs> game, and the orchids. They were they were, all these these women had so much going on in their lives, and the fact that you brought them all together in at the garden party, I really enjoyed. I enjoyed their interaction. Thank you so much. Do you know the um, the whole chapter with the retirement home is one of my favorite chapters. It was a delight for me to write it, and a lot of that stemmed from when I was a girl in high school. I had a part-time job at a nursing home, and I really got to interact with the elderly and found that they had a lot to offer. Well, and you know, that's, they are a... It's a group of people. Uh, it's a group that is often forgotten, and especially in our culture. And you're, so I thought right. it was really important to bring that out, that, that just because they were alone or maybe had lost a little bit of their own mental marbles, it didn't mean that they weren't still full human beings with something that they could share with the younger generation. And I really liked how Cece embraced them and really felt that they were her friends, and she never belittled them or anything, and that to me was important. And how how Oletta was dedicated to visiting, which is something we forget to do. We're in our busy culture today. We don't just take time to visit with people. You're right, and I noticed that even when I was a young girl working at the nursing home is how many of the old folks only had family come a couple times a year. And it was heartbreaking. And now, so, I wanted to ask you something that's actually away from the novel, but what was ex- uh, this had to be very exciting. This is your first book. Is that I am right there? Yes, is that you're correct? correct. Well, to be actually discovered and to uh, be compared to authors, you know, who wrote like Steel Magnolias, and to actually be the first book in a new imprint. How did this all come about? Well, you know, this had it, to be a kind of a Cinderella story. Um, the one thing that I did do was I, uh, a great deal of research as to who was selling what to whom. I knew that I wanted to have a phenomenal literary agent. And so I, I believe in that adage, go big or go home. And so I decided that I would really carefully research and go with the top agents. And... I landed Catherine Drayton of Inkwell Management, and we hit it off tremendously, and she offered me representation, and I felt comfortable with it from the get-go. And I had no idea, of course, who she would be sending the submission package to, but I certainly had heard of Pamela Dorman. I mean, Pamela Dorman is a legend in women's literature. And when my literary agent called me, this is the day after she sent the submission package saying that several publishers wanted the book, but Pamela Dorman was the one that wanted it off the table in a preempt. I was just completely flabbergasted, delighted, but flabbergasted. And you had, had you to your, to the agent, had, you had written the full manuscript before you submitted it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was completely written, and I had spent nine months editing it as well. 
And how long did it take you to actually write the book from start to finish? Nine months in editing. <clears throat> how long in actual writing? Three years and three months to write and nine months of editing. It was it was four years four almost years to the total. day. So it was a it, it was truly a a, a labor of uh, love and hard work. So it wasn't in, like an overnight success of just finding somebody. You did the homework, and I think that's a real lesson for wannabe writers: is that you have to do your homework. Yes, you do, and you also. I learned something else: is that I think that many times writers fall in love with their work and they're blind. And what I had to do was really go back and go in and edit with a ruthless hand because there were many passages that I ripped. I loved them, but I knew they didn't advance the story. And there was something else that was important. I put in a few men because I felt it was, quote, correct to do that. And when I started editing, I realized that I wasn't being true to my craft, that this was a story that's basically three months and I couldn't have men in there because it was a woman's story, and the men actually bogged it down. And so that was something that it was real gutsy for me to do that because I was worried I'd take heat about it. But in the end, it was the right decision. No, I think it's the right decision. I mean, the one man that <clears throat> is present in there is her father, who is such a loser. You know, such a loser, yet you know that he he loves his daughter, but in a very kind of... On fatherly <laughs> way, right? Well, and, and I think you made the damage right soul. This is a woman's story. This is a story of strong, powerful women and how they create a their life. I want to give out your website. The book is Saving CC Honeycutt. The author is Beth Hoffman. It is an absolutely delightful read in hardcover. You want to pick up a copy, BethHoffman.net is the website. Just wind it up for us, Beth. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for this. It's been a delight. And I, I just want to let anybody know out there who has the itch to write is to go after the dream, to just go ahead and go after it. Um, there's nothing to stop anybody but themselves. And with a lot of hard work and a lot of research and self-belief, you have to believe in yourself. It can happen. I mean, I'm living proof. They talk about, oh, the publishers don't aren't looking for anybody now. They're just going after the people that are already established. Well, that's so not true. Publishers not true. are dying for new new talent. So that's what I want to say is go after your dream. Well, and I think you said it best. I mean, I'm a huge believer that if you can dream it, you can do it. And what, But you added the most important element. You have to put in the work. You show up and do the work. Beth, thank you so much for being on Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with your book, Saving CC Honeycut. We'll look forward to future books. I know that this one's already way on its way, and we're going to look forward to the movie. It's been an absolute pleasure, Beth, and best of success for you. Cynthia, thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Thank you. You've been listening to Cynthia Bryan on Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I am so delighted that all of you are with me every week right here where the world comes to talk and listen. Stay tuned for more, and if you want information about the charity, be the starur.org, or you can go to Star 
Cynthia-Bryan-Style.com for information about Cynthia Bryan. Until we celebrate next week, go out into the world and be the star you are. Thanks for joining me. We'll celebrate next week. Ciao for now. Thanks again for listening to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. For more information about Be the Star You Are nonprofit corporation, please visit bethestarur.org. That's bethestarur.org. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany again next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, here on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember, to be a leader, you must be a reader. Enjoy a stellar week. You're a secret.